0: If you have your Bible, you can turn to the book of Haggai. That's where we are picking back up. Some ask, is it Haggai or Haggai? I'm saying Haggai because that's what Tyler said last week, and that's been confirmed by Kristen Getty on the ESV Bible app. <laughs> so uh, that's how she says it, too. And she's got a cool accent. Uh, does anybody miss James Earl Jones on the ESV Bible app? Y'all know what I'm talking about? All right, never mind. Uh, the one prior to Kristen Getty sounded like James Earl Jones, who would read the Bible to you. Um, <clears throat> but you guys don't think that's funny, so we're not going to talk about that anymore. But we'll be in the book of Haggai this morning. Continuing on, I'm looking forward to uh, picking up in chapter 1, where Tyler left off last week. This is the assignment that he gave me. Uh, verses 12 through 15, and looking forward to uh, turning our attention there together and spending some time in God's Word. November the 10th, 1483, Hans and Margareta Luter gave birth to who we would become to know as Martin Luther. Martin Luther lived in his parents' home. His father found somewhat of some upward mobility, which was extremely rare in their day as a copper miner. And he would not have been wealthy by any standard, but somewhat of what we might consider a middle-class individual. He had great desire for his children that they would do better than him, as any parent would, right? And have better opportunities than he would. So he was excited to see that his son Martin had a great mind and intellect and sent him off to university at Erfurt where he would become a lawyer that was the plan Upon visiting home one time during the summer and returning to Erfurt for university he found himself Martin in a severe thunderstorm The storm was so severe lightning striking nearby Throwing him from his horse, he feared his own life and he said, cried out, Saint Anne, the patron saint of Myers, save me and I will become a monk. Much to his father's displeasure, he entered an Augustinian, not even a prestigious oyster, right? The very next day, he began a life of monkery. And it was there that with his Acute mind that he began to be tortured in his conscience wondering how it is that we can be made right with God. He would say at one point in his life, if anyone could be saved through monkery, it was I. Nearly starving himself multiple times, freezing himself at night, denying himself cover, scourging himself to seek to pay for sin and make himself right with God. At one point during this time, he journaled, love God. I don't love God, I hate him. And his, his, his problem was, he says, how is it that we can be made right with God? To know that God is holy and to know that he is good and, and want to be made right with him. And, and it's not something that Luther could figure out and work his way to. Eventually, we know some of the story, or I hope you do as he continued on in this journey of seeking to study God's Word and read God's Word and, and find out how it is that man could be made right with God and to, to look at the church around him and to see those in his context as he ended up at Wittenberg, to see them just going through what we might call mechanical Christianity, if you will, where they were just external actions would make them right with God irregardless of the posture and the attitude of the heart. And this grieved Luther, and it led to him unintentionally sparking the Reformation on October 31st, 1517, when he posted the 95 Thesis to Castledore Church in Wittenberg. And the very first thesis for academic disputation, mind you, not to seek to get it out to the public, but just to talk about the church and potential reforms that needed to be made. And that very first thesis read this way, when our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, said repent, he meant that the entire life of believers should be one of repentance. Luther's point was, is that repentance should be more than just some sort of external outward actions irregardless of heart posture, but it should be a life of continually turning to the Lord in our heart. Well, friends, the whole theme, and I'd love to talk about Martin Luther. It's one of my favorite subjects, but that's not my task this morning. This whole theme of repentance has continued to be something that is debated and talked about in Christian circles all throughout Thomas Watson would write some hundred years later, repentance is never out of season for the Christian. Sounds very similar to what Luther said. In 1718 there would come to be something in the Scottish Presbyterian Church called the Marrow Controversy. It was related to repentance. Even in our own day in the late 1970s and the early 80s, we have something called the Lordship Controversy that continues to resurface itself. What is repentance? What is its nature and what does it belong in the life of the Christian? Well, this morning in our passage, I think very clearly lays out to us what repentance looks like and what is present when repentance happens in the life of God's people. And so with that in mind, let's turn our attention to Haggai verse 12 of chapter 1. And we'll read to the end of the chapter. This is God's word. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, in the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. And then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtel, governor of Judah, the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we know even physically we can eat food and not be nourished by it correctly. Father, we know that just because we eat, it doesn't mean our bodies are processing food rightly and that they're being nourished the way they ought to. Father, when that happens, it's all of your grace. Even more so, we can sit here this morning and hear from your word and not be nourished spiritually. But just because we hear it doesn't mean that it's taking root by faith in our lives and bearing fruit. And so, Father, this morning we pause and we confess. Give us the attention this morning to be attentive to your word. But, Father, not just to hear it, but to truly hear it to where we would receive it in faith. Father, to where it would take root in our lives and where it would bear fruit for your glory. So may the Holy Spirit go before us, tilling the soil of our hearts, that it would be good soil for the seed to fall on. And it's for your glory and for our good. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Well, we stop there at the end of... Uh, 15. We just read through the first part of 15, and we'll explain that later if I don't forget. And so uh, let's uh, first think about, and what I'm going to do is set the stage a little bit, and then we'll turn our attention kind of to the outline uh, for uh, these few verses. And so the title of my sermon, we can just leave it there, is The Fruit of Repentance. And there's ways in which Christians have talked over the years about fruit keeping with repentance, right? That'd be one way to think about the fruit of the repentance is if we're truly repentant, is there fruit that is evidence of that repentance? Really, the sermon title this morning is not in that vein. I, what I mean is that there is, in light of what we saw last week in the first part of this chapter, the fruit and the outcome of that is now repentance. That's what's happened, right? The outcome of that is repentance. And in a few moments, we'll look and we're going to see that there are some things that are present when this happens. There are things that are present and happening when this repentance happens, and I think we can be instructed by that and learn through that. And so, uh, first and foremost, let me set the stage this way. This sermon is primarily guided, directed to Christians. Uh, I am, I am, my aim and my audience this morning is to the church. And so if you're not a Christian this morning, we're glad you're here. We're glad you're here. And what I want to do is just briefly say to you, why is it that we would gather and that we would hear really a monologue, something that's, that's pretty strange in our culture and our day from an ancient text? And, and the reason why we would do that is because we've recognized that we are all created by a benevolent, holy, and loving God. And that we have rebelled against that holy, loving, benevolent God who has given of his goodness to us for his glory and for our joy. We've rebelled against him just like our first parents, Adam and Eve, did. We've sought to usurp his authority, to be our own gods, to pave our own way. We may do that through moral living of trying to live a way that would earn something for us. We may do that through reckless living of saying we'll just live lawlessly and live however we want, but we have sought to assert ourselves to live for our kingdom, for our glory, and to establish ourselves. It's called sin, and it manifests itself in many different ways. Yet God in His kindness and His goodness did not leave us to ourselves, that He ultimately sent His own Son who would come and live a perfect, righteous, and holy life And he went to the cross and he took the sin and the punishment for that sin that we deserved for our rebellion upon himself and made a way for us to be reconciled to God. The Bible says the wages of sin, wage is what you earned, deserved, merited. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life that Christ went to the cross and took that death upon himself For us, he never sinned, therefore he did not earn that wage of death. He earned life and righteousness. He took death and he gives us life. And so we understand ourselves to be believers, to be Christians, to be saved, to be redeemed because we've come to recognize our sin. We've come to recognize the Savior is the only, uh, God's Son is the only true Savior. And we are trusting in him for salvation. And God has made us his people. And so as his people, as Bob was talking about in his prayer, we don't want to live for ourselves and for our kingdom. We want to live as people of God's kingdom and live out his kingdom ethic. And so what that requires of us is that we change. Repentance. Repentance. And so just to go ahead and tell you where I think repentance is, faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. You cannot trust God and his plan of salvation, Jesus as Savior, without acknowledging repentance, a change of mind that leads to the change of actions, without acknowledging I'm a bad king in my own life, and Jesus is a good king, the king who would come and lay down his life for me. I want to live for him. That cha- that's a change of mind in faith. I'm going to trust him for salvation, and I'm going to follow him. They're two sides of the same coin. Yet, it's not a one-time thing in the life of the Christian. And the life of a Christian is all of life. is a life of faith and repentance that we continue on every day. And so that kind of sets the context for you. So this morning, if you say, I'm not a Christian, we're glad you're here. We want you to know the gospel. We want to talk to you more about the gospel. What I just shared with you in just a brief nutshell, we'd love to have that conversation with you after service. You can come find me somebody else who's been up front this morning, or just ask someone who's sitting near you because they are saved as well by this good news and they love to talk about it and would love to talk to you about it. And so this, is, this sets the context. And so what we're looking at is that we would, as uh, God's people, live continually in repentance. And I think as we see in this passage, we see repentance and we see several things that go with it. So now let me give you the outline. Let me give you the outline. This is the next slide of my expansive slide presentation for my sermon. Uh, and this is the final slide. All right. So if you've been around for a while, I'm growing. I used to never do PowerPoint. Now you get two slides. I think you got three last time. But here's the outline. Here's how we'll go. These are the things that seem to be present in this, that are present in this context when repentance happens. What do we see? We see the word of the Lord. We see the fear of the Lord. We see the presence of the Lord. And then we see the work of the Lord, right? So we'll kind of go through and look at those things in detail. All right. So the fruit being repentance, we see that first in verse 12, right? I didn't put the fruit up there because it didn't look as good. I guess I could have said the fruit of the Lord. Anyway, so, uh, but let's, let's just, let's look at that first. Look at verse 12. What does it say? It says, they heard God's word, right? They obeyed the voice of, of the Lord their God, it says, with all the remnant of the people, the leaders, and all the remnant of the people. That remnant is very uh, reminiscent of other prophets, especially Isaiah. Right, this remnant of people who who would hear God's word, return to Him, uh, and it says they heard and they obeyed the voice of the Lord. There's the repentance; they obeyed. Remember, they were called out of the slumber last week. You're focused on your kingdom, your glory. You're not focused on my house. And and they heard and, and, and they changed direction. This is repentance. There was a change. They obeyed the voice of the Lord. So let's give you the definition again. This time from Sinclair Ferguson. Repentance, a radical change of mind that would lead to a deep transformation of life. Repentance, a radical change of mind that would lead to a deep transformation of life. Brothers and sisters, what were you convicted of last week as you heard God's word? We missed being with you last week, but I listened uh, this this week. Not the same as being live and in person. I'll say that actually in a minute. It's part of the sermon. But, and heard from God's word, and heard as Tyler shared about the call that he has on us. That the temple today, for us as new covenant believers, is not the building, but the people you're sitting around. It's the church. That God has called us to be active in church work. What we were you convicted of last week? All right? Now, let me ask you this what has changed this week? What, has, what is beginning to change? See, brothers and sisters, we can find ourselves in a place where we're content to be stirred by God's Word, but never be changed by God's Word. And that's a dangerous place to be. We're content to be stirred by it. We're content to be, have our toes stepped on. We're okay with that, but to not really be changed by it, to not really begin to see the fruit of that bearing out in our lives. And so as we enter this passage and we see there was change here among these people as they heard from the Word, they obeyed the voice of the Lord. And so I think it, we need to sit down for a minute and ask. I'm, I'm happy to have a few verses so we can slow down here and really tease this out. What has changed? What is beginning to change? Am I content just to be stirred by God's word but not be changed by it? So with that in mind, let's turn our attention to these four things that are present when this change is happening. Among the people that Haggai is speaking to. First, we see in verse 12, the word of the Lord. It says, they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. In the words of Haggai, the prophet, as the Lord their God sent him, and the people feared the Lord. They obeyed as God's word came to them through God's servant. Joyce Baldwin wrote a commentary on Haggai back in 1972. I thought this kind of language was, kind of, was new, right? More, more current, but I love a line that she has in there. It says, when God has spoken, apathy is evidence of practical atheism. So when God has spoken, if we're apathetic to it, she says that's evidence of practical atheism. Do you... Give yourself to God's word. Do you give yourself to God's word? If you back up and look at verse 9, look at verse 9 in in chapter 1. You looked for much, and behold, it came of little. And when you bought it, when you brought it home, I blew it away. And it just talks about the futility of what's happening in their lives. And And I can't help but read that and think of Psalm 1. You know Psalm 1, right? Psalm 1 verse 1, blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. Right? He, he, he sits not, stands, uh, he, he stands, sits not in the way of scoffers, walks in the way of scoffers. And, it, and it, then it says this, it says in verse 3, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields fruit in its season. And then it says, the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. You see the contrast there, right? Those who who heed God's word and give themselves to his word, they're like trees planted by waters. They yield fruit in their season, but but the wicked are not so. They're they're like chaff. Their lives come of nothing. It's just tossed by the wind. It's blown. It's ephemeral. There's, There's nothing to it of substance. In the end, it doesn't matter. And ultimately, Psalm 1 tells us, and Haggai confirms this, right, is that, It will result in nothing, and it will ultimately lead to judgment. Verse 6 of Psalm 1. You can go and read it later. And, And that's what's happening here. And so, brothers and sisters, what we need to understand is that we must be a people. If we want to see the fruit of repentance, and we want to see our lives bearing this out, we must be a people first who will give ourselves to God's Word. Because it's God's Word that's going to call us back to sanity. It's God's Word that's going to call us out of the stupor, out of the slumber that we're in, and it's going to put us back on the path that we're supposed to be on. And and so we must be a people who are committed to God's Word and who want to give ourselves to God's Word, to give ourselves to it both in personal study and to the public preaching of the Word. See, what's unique about us as Christians is that we are a people of the ear, that we hear the Lord. Jesus said, it's my sheep that know me and hear my voice. God's people heard him, the remnant heard him, and they returned to him. They repented to him and returned to the Lord knowing his voice. Brothers and sisters, if we want to know the areas where we need repentance in our life, we have to hold up the mirror of God's word and look into it and say, this is where I've parted to the left. This is where I've parted to the right. I need repentance in my life. I need a course correction. And if we're not committed to God's word, we're not going to hear from him. This is where we hear from him. This is where he's spoken to us. And so, brothers and sisters, I'm not at all trying to equate the the prophets of the Old Testament with preaching today, but what we need to do is we need to see how we come across right the gulf of differences in light of Scripture and what God has given us is His Word once and for all delivered to the saints. And He's put us in the church that Jesus Christ is building Himself. And He uses preachers to proclaim His Word to His people to call them back to gospel sanity and to call them back to His ways and out of their sin. And so first and foremost, we must be a people who are committed to the preaching of the Word. Now, I'll make my case from 1 Corinthians 5, but there is something special about God's people gathered in corporate worship, in a covenant body, where He works in ways that He does not work normally. Where He works uniquely among His people. You can go to 1 Corinthians 5 later and read. You can check me on this, and we can debate it if you want to. I don't really like to debate, but if you want to, we will, right? But in 1 Corinthians 5, when Paul is talking about church discipline, what does he say? When he's talking about church discipline, he's saying the church needs to act. The church needs to act. And he says, when you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 5, 4. And then he says, with the power of the Lord Jesus. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, that's what we're here we are a people who are gathered by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're making the most political statement that could ever be made just by gathering together because we're saying Jesus Christ is Lord forever and forever, and he serves none. King and kings, king, He's king of kings, he's Lord of lords, and all will bow to him and confess his name one day. We could never make a more political statement than that. And so we're gathering in His name and under His power. And when His people gather together, He works in unique ways among us. And He is building His church and He is using His church. Friends, the precedent for this throughout church history is strong. One of the first Southern Baptist theologians said, Preaching is characteristic of Christianity. No other religion has made the regular and frequent assembling of groups of people to hear religious instruction and exhortation an integral part of divine worship. He says it's unique to Christianity. What about one of the second generation reformers? We mentioned Martin Luther. How about Heinrich Bullinger, who took the place of Ulrich Zwingli in Switzerland? This is what he said about preaching. He says, Wherefore, when this word of God is now preached in the church by preachers lawfully clawed, we called, not clawed, by preachers lawfully called. We believe that the very word of God is proclaimed and received by the faithful and that neither any of the word of God is to be invented, right? So the word not to be invented, it's to be read from here, nor is it to be expected from heaven, and that now the word itself, which is preached, is to be regarded not the minister. You hear that? The word is to be regarded, not the minister that preaches. For even if he be an evil sinner, nevertheless, the word of God remains still true and good. And so... Brothers and sisters, we are a people of the ear. We are a people of the word who give ourselves to God's word. And if we want to see the fruit of repentance in our lives, then we must be a people who are giving ourselves devoted to the word of God. So we'll do application throughout the sermon. Let me give you a couple of things that I think that we should do as a church in an effort to give ourselves to God's word. First, pray for the ministry of the word in the church. Friends, don't ever take it for granted. I'm so thankful for Pastor Ken. I'm thankful for the elders. I'm not Pastor Ken, by the way. My name's Matt Baker. Pastor Ken is on a preaching break. I should have said that at the beginning. So don't hold this against him. But... but. I'm thankful for Pastor Ken. I'm thankful for our elders. I'm thankful for our base group leaders. I'm thankful for our men's and women's Bible study leaders. I'm, I'm thankful for the ministry of the Word in our church. And I believe we are exceptionally blessed here at New Branch. But we should never take it for granted. We should pray for the ministry of the Word in our church. Pray that it endures. Pray that it's faithful. Pray that it continues. Pray that we give our ears to it. Pray that we don't take it for granted. Pray for the ministry of the Word. Second, Let us labor to hear the word. I heard recently of a preacher of old who said, You should labor to hear the word as much as I labor to preach it. Oh, friends, that we would give our ears to it. That we would give our hearts to God's word. We live in an age of distraction. We live in an age where where we are so easily distracted, so easily carried away from things. Guys, I was reading an article the other day. Only 500 words. And it was talking about how we are losing the ability to focus long-term on something. And I got to a, to a heading and I thought, I need to take a break and check my email. I thought, well, this is exactly what I'm reading about. It's is correcting me on that. And as I'm reading it, I'm thinking, I need to, I need to check my email. And why am I? I probably should check social media too. No! Friends, we are a people who are given to distraction. Probably uniquely more so than most throughout human history. We have got to labor to give our attention to God's Word. We've got to labor to work at it. Sermons. Attend. Listen. Seek to apply. Base groups, studies, conversations. Be committed to what Jonathan Lehman called reverberation. That we're going to have the opportunity to talk to one another on the way out of here this morning. On the way into here this morning. That we're going to have the opportunity to talk to one another in base group text throughout the week. Reverberate God's word throughout. Let it echo throughout the life of the church. That we are constantly calling one another to faithfulness to God's word. That we are committed to his word. And then last, let me give you one more. Let us labor to study God's word. Personally. Another thing that's unique to us over the last, what, 500 years is that we have copies of God's Word that we can read, study. This is why the Reformers were committed to translating God's Word into native tongues, into teaching literacy, so that people could read God's Word. We have a unique privilege, and we should be committed to studying it. If I can just make a confession, and if you say, I can't, I'm going to anyway. Anyway. I love God's Word. I've committed the better part of my life to studying it. But friends, do not think for one minute that I don't face temptations, that Satan's not crafty, and that the flesh is not weak and stubborn. Plenty of times I'd rather not give my attention to God's Word. In personal study, there's plenty of times I'd rather not heed God's Word when indwelling sin wants to reign and when the flesh wants to overrule. Friends, none of us is immune. We must be a people who are committed to God's word and committed to giving ourselves to it. Next, what do we see that's present? It's the fear of the Lord. First, the word of the Lord came to them. But you also notice that in that, this feeds into us giving heed to God's word. The fear of the Lord. Look at what we see. It says, The voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. If you want to see more and more fruit of repentance in your life, then seek to cultivate a healthy fear of the Lord. Then seek to cultivate a healthy fear of the Lord. Psalm thirty, three through 4 If you, O Lord... Should mark iniquities, O oh Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. If you marked iniquities, Lord, who could stand? None of us could stand. But Father, there, with you there is forgiveness. But notice how the psalmist ends it that you may be feared. Where is, where, where, is the, where is the fear the Lord cultivated by reading his word? By reading his word and giving ourselves to his word is, is where we see this. Do we have a healthy fear of the Lord? Let's think about this in the broader context of Haggai and Tyler's application last week of, of church work, right? Of spending time investing in the life of the church. And where he went to to appeal to this, that the temple of the Lord today is God's people, is 1 Corinthians 3, right? You remember that? And later in 1 Corinthians 3, this is what it says in 10 through 15. 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15. Let me read it to you. According to the grace of God given to me, this is Paul writing, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building on, upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. First stop right there. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. Soberly. Carefully. All right, let's pick back up. "...for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day," that's capitalized, that's eschatological, the day, the end, "...for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done." If the world that any, I mean, if the word that anyone has built upon the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through the fire. Now, what's going on there? What it's saying is that, that in the end, that our church work, right? The same context of the temple that we are, that we're building on the foundation that's laid, which is Christ Jesus, that our service to the church, that there would be wood, hay, stubble, or it says as well, gold, silver, precious stones. Fire will reveal it in the last day. The implication is wood, hay, stubble be burnt up. Gold, silver, precious stones will be remaining. And it will reveal the work in the last day day. Now notice what he says. If it survives, he will receive his reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved as though through the fire. So it's not talking about salvation. It's saying that they'll be saved as though through the fire. What it's saying is that some of us are just going to smell like smoke. That in the last day, that, 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 that our work, this should cultivate a fear of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, don't think Don't think that those who have the most stage time that their work is going to be the most important. Because friends, you can stand where I stand right now and God can work in spite of you and use your efforts and labors for his glory, but you can be doing it for your own glory and it'll go up in smoke in the last day. Friends, our labor needs to be fueled by a healthy fear of the Lord. Two weeks ago, I was sitting, I was listening to a panel discussion. It was a group of pastors. And two of the pastors on the panel discussion were older. The others, I would now have to place myself in the middle age group. I turned 40 a week ago. Pray for me. Um, my hip hurts right now. I may, I may end up propping it up just like this. But, um, <clears throat> but, but what we saw two of them were older. One of those men is exactly the age of my mom. And as they were talking, the two older men were talking, and, and he just made this passing comment. One said to the other, Brother, it will not be long before we stand before the Lord. And I'm telling you, when he said that, that laid me open bare. And what he was saying is, hey, we're, we're getting closer and I felt the weight on the eve of my birthday that, that week thinking I'm, I'm a lot closer and not guaranteed tomorrow. And we will stand before the Lord. And the question is, is are we doing the work that the Lord has called us to? And if you say yes, the next question is, are you doing it for your glory or for his Are you doing it for his fame and for his acclaim or for yours? Are you seeking his glory and his kingdom or your own? This reverent fear of the Lord will drive us to repentance. It will drive us to his work over our own work. As we can see, even in light of this passage, the only way we stand before him and where there'll be judgment. But just like we see here in 1 Corinthians 3, just like we saw in Psalm 1, if we're doing it for us in the end, it's, gonna, it's just going to be of nothing. It's just going up in smoke. It's going to be ephemeral. It's just over here today and gone tomorrow. But 1 Corinthians 15 58. Be steadfast, be immovable always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Brothers and sisters, if we're doing it for His glory, it is eternal and never in vain. What do you want to give your life to? Every one of us in a sober moment would say, we want to give our life to something that matters, something that's eternal. Brothers and sisters, that's everything that we do. Everything matters. Our marriages, our parenting, our money, our church work, our work in the community, our neighborliness, all of it matters. And it all can be done for his glory or it can be done for ours. Next, what do we see that's present in this passage when this repentance is happening? See the presence of the Lord. Verse 13, Then Haggai the messenger of the Lord spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. Listen, especially to my tender-hearted brothers and sisters who have sensitive consciences, you need to pay special attention to verse 13. Hear the words, I am with you, declares the Lord, and be comforted by that. There's usually two types of people. There are those who metaphorically speaking need to be hit over the head with the hammer and they're like, why didn't you just say so, right? And they just roll with it. And then there are those who are more tender-hearted and have more sensitive conscience and such a harsh word is almost unbearable. Friends, we all need to hear this, that the Lord is with us. He's with you. He's not abandoned you. He's not given up on you. It's important that we notice God's grace throughout this book. And the word of the Lord came to them. That's God's grace. Do you see that? His grace proceeds always. That you hear God's word and be convicted by it, that's God's grace. That you would hear his word, that his word would come to you, that's his grace. That you're convicted, that's his grace. Because apart from his grace, you would not care. You wouldn't care. You hear and you're like, so what? You hear and you're convicted, that's God's grace. He's at work in your life. He's not abandoned you, he's not given up on you. They respond, that's God's grace. Don't miss God's grace because it is an indication of his presence. God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Friend, if you're humbled by this word, know that the Lord is lavishing grace upon you, that you're humbled by it. Know that even in that humility that the Lord has continued to lavish grace upon you so that he can exalt you at the proper time. Know that the Lord is at work in your life. When you're convicted, be thankful it's His grace. Be thankful that you hear God's word and that you care. It's those who hear God's word and are not sobered who should not be comforted. If you hear His word and you're like, I don't care. If you hear His word and you're not sobered by it. If you hear His word and you just can't wait to move on to the next thing. You should not be comforted. And listen to me friend, if that unsettles you, it's not too late to turn to the Lord even now. Because that's His grace. If you can hear that and and you be unsettled by that, that alone is His grace. And I'm telling you, imploring you, turn to the Lord and meet Him in His mercy and His grace and find His favor in Christ Jesus and throw yourself at the feet of Christ and cling to Him. Christians, this is why we need each other. We need each other. We need to seek to apply God's word to our lives. See, this morning, maybe when we ask the question, what's different this week from last week? What's beginning to change in your life that was not changing last week, that is now changing? We need each other in our lives because so often we can't see the growth in our own lives like others can see the growth in us. Anybody going to see... Family or grandparents this summer that you haven't seen in maybe five, six months, something like that. We all see that? I see that hand, brother. The first thing when you see, if you have younger kids, right? First thing, you see aunts and uncles, you see grandparents you haven't seen in a while. What's the first thing they say? Wow, they've really grown. I mean, you're with them all the time. You're like, I just thought they were the same and still annoying like they always are, right? Yeah, this kind of thing. (laughs) I'm joking. I love most of my kids. No, uh, right? But, but, that's, 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 but they see it, right? They see that growth. Friends, the same is true in our lives spiritually. We need brothers and sisters around us. And we can begin to ask others about this and begin to work this out together. Because I've been there. Falling under, under deep conviction I think, man, I'm totally blowing it. And just go and, and talk to brothers in Christ about it. And they, and they begin to mark out for me and say, hey, man, I've seen this change in you. I've seen this change. I've seen, and, and just can point out some incremental things. And that is a grace to us. And we all need that. We need one another around us to help us with that. And we also need them to say, hey, you know what? Yeah, no, you're not lying to yourself here. You're, 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 I've not seen much change there. We need that as well, too. And all of that is God's grace to us. And this is the way growth begins to work. So brothers and sisters, you need to be around other Christians here in the covenant body who care for you, who love you, and who can watch your life and can attest to things that are changing and can can hold you accountable to areas where they're not. And the last thing that I want us to see, as we see that this all is, by God's grace, his work. Look at verse 14. And the Lord stirred up the spirit. Of Zerubbabel, the governor, Joshua, the son of Josadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. That none of this happens without God working in our hearts. That all of this is by the Lord stirring in the hearts of his people. That all of this is of God's grace, that all of this is his work, and that reality should drive us to prayer even more. That that reality should drive us that when we turn our attention to God's word in personal study, and when we turn our attention to God's word in worship, when we turn our attention to God's word in, in various places in the life of the church, that we should pray. Lord, open our eyes to see. Help me to see the thing that I don't want to see, right? Be convicted by the thing that I'd rather ignore. Call me out of my sin. Call me out of the areas where I have strayed from you and call me back to yourself. Let your work, your word, be effectual, not for the hardening of my heart, but for the softening of my heart and for the wooing of me to yourself. Lord, stir. Give your blessing. Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers labor in vain. Apart from me, you can do nothing, is what Jesus said. We need God's effectual work through the power of his Holy Spirit in our lives. In the life of our church. Or else all that we do is in vain. So brothers and sisters, this reality should drive us to prayer. Pray for the Lord's word. Pray that he would make it effectual in your life. Pray that he would give your heart more and more to his word. That he would open your eyes and that you would see where he's calling you to. And that he would align your desires with his desires. And your heart with his heart. And so in the life of the church as well. One last thing. A word of caution. Can I give us a word of caution? Repentance doesn't look the same for everyone. What do I mean? In this context, everyone's work on the temple in Haggai's day would not look the same everybody's not going to be doing the same thing. Look at what it says. It says that they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. We've got to know that everybody wasn't doing the same thing. Everybody wasn't cutting and, and timbering wood, and everyone wasn't right, putting it together and so on and so forth. Everyone had various roles and jobs. Brothers and sisters, we need to be aware of the temptation that when the Lord works in our life and calls us to something that we are immediately often drawn to think everybody else should be doing the same thing that we're doing. And that's dangerous. That's dangerous. I don't want all of us doing the same thing. Some of you have a uniquely... Burdened hearts for prayer. Some of you have uniquely burdened hearts for evangelism. Some of you have uniquely burdened hearts for discipleship. Some of you have uniquely burdened hearts for single moms. Some of you have uniquely burdened hearts for prison ministry. Some of you have uniquely burdened hearts for the for the underprivileged, for those on the margins. Some of you have uniquely burdened hearts for those uh, overseas, the unreached, and so on and so forth. We could go. And I want everyone doing all of those things because then when we do that, we're the body of Christ, and we are active in what He's calling us to, and we can do more together than we can. In Individually on ourselves. And we don't want to just be one big arm. One big eye. We want to be the fullness of the expression. Of the body of Christ. And the bride of Christ. In this local community. We must beware of the temptation. To think that repentance in my life. Is going to look exactly the same. In everybody else's life. The great Dutch theologian. Herman Bavinck made this point. This is how he started. This is a lengthy quote, so I'll just give you a piece of it. He said, Repentance is, despite its oneness and essence, different in form according to persons in whom it takes place and the circumstances in which it takes place. What he's warning about is, is saying that repentance will look the same in everybody and come up with formulaic ways to bring it about, reproduce it, so on and so forth. And As you can tell, he, he's a theologian of yesteryear. Notice, he says, despite its oneness and essence, it's different in form according to persons in whom it takes place and the circumstances in which it takes place. Now, listen to the last part. The true repentance does not consist of what men make of it, but what God says of it. In the diversity of providences and experiences, it consists and must consist of the dying of the old and the rising of the new. He says that's what it is in essence. It may look different in circumstances and the providences and the way the Lord brings it about and the way he works it in the lives of people. But in essence, what it consists of is the dying of the old man and the rising of the new and living out the fruit of the gospel and growth and grace. Brothers and sisters, may we be a people who are marked by the fruit of repentance in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We know that it is good. And Lord, we ask that what we have talked about, so let it be so in our lives. Make us a people who hunger for your word, who have a holy, reverent fear of you. Father, who are stirred by your spirit and who are comforted by your presence. And may it be for your glory and for the good of our community and for the nations and for the joy of us as a church. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.